Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles, arms out wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise by your power. We will go by your spirit. We are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Well, it's hour two of mornings with Carmen here on. Thursday, March the 9th, 2023. Um, Sometimes you just let the world prove your point. So sometimes you just let the world prove your point. That's what happened yesterday uh, in Florida. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who, you know, I'm I'm awake. I'm paying attention. Uh, I know he is actively angling to be a candidate for the presidency. This is not about that. This is about letting the world prove your point. So um, my guess is that when the Florida governor at a press event yesterday in Tampa, um, where he was um, seeking to, quote, set the record straight um, about library bookshelves um, pretending that Florida schools cannot teach about topics like African-American history, um, these kinds of things. So what he wanted to lift up and by showing them and reading portions of them actually demonstrate that there was a lot of inappropriate uh, content in books, pornographic content that was uh, available in Florida schools to Florida students. And so in order to uh, to demonstrate this, he used uh, some uh, he used some books that were found in 23 school districts across the state of Florida. And he was showcasing the books. And while he was showcasing the books, local news channels had to stop broadcasting. Because the overt sexual nature of the books was not allowed by the FCC, you know, by the the. Uh, it's the FCC. It's the it's the 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 governmental oversight for things that happen over the airwaves. Like there are things that we can't say here on air and wouldn't say even if we could say them. But there are guardrails. There are especially when you talk about daytime television, middle of the day, times when kids might be watching. There's stuff you're not allowed to broadcast. And so these television stations were like, hey, that's not content we can broadcast making, obviously, the governor's point. Um, If books that are found in public schools are too explicit and would get a sensitive content warning on Twitter, um, then the governor's point about the content of books on library shelves in schools across the state of Florida um, is probably worthy we're, you know, worthy. So there you go. Sometimes just let the world make your point. Sometimes just let the world make your point. Um, and then be there to say there there are reasons that we guard our hearts and minds. There are um, standards of holiness and propriety. There are um, 
parts of the body about which we are sensitive because God's designed it that way. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Let's never forget that. Marriage is given to us um, because there is a reality beyond our imagining where we become one with Christ in a way that marriage is intended to hear hear in real time to be a mystical expression, a mysterious uh, reflection of the reality that we will enjoy one day in the kingdom of heaven as the very bride of Christ. So let's keep the marriage bed sacred. Um, and let's regard our bodies in the way that God regards our bodies. Precious in his sight, knit together in our mother's wombs, fearfully and wonderfully made. And yes, um, temples of the Holy Spirit. Let's be places and people in which God is pleased to dwell today. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. So sometimes we um, we have a plan, <clears throat> and we have uh, uh, an approach that we are planning to take together here in a conversation, and then we find out just moments um, before that, um, well, that plan's not going to come to fruition. And so um, the person we had anticipated being here to talk with in this uh, in this portion of the show is not going to be here today. We will find a time to get back with him. But that means that right now what I have uh, done on my on my laptop is um, opened up what I call my pocket. And I am just going to dip into the pocket and see what's going on in the world, um, see what pops in terms of the headlines, um, both Christian and secular, and then see, you know, see in real time what God does. Well, that sounds fun, doesn't it? All right, you can text me. Uh, if there's something in particular you have been hoping I would address on air, <laughs> now would be the time to say, hey, uh, I'd like to hear you talk about this. So I got a note yesterday from a listener that said, are you going to talk about Saddleback Church? Are you going to talk about the fact that Saddleback, um, the church that was founded by Rick Warren, 40-some years ago now. He's he's no longer the pastor of Saddleback. Um, the, uh, the pastor of Saddleback is now Andy Wood. Um, but there uh, there is, I don't know, there's news related to Saddleback, not only because it's, it's a, it's not just one church in one location. It is a network of churches around the world, and um, it is the basis for uh, a a network of churches that are called Purpose Driven. Saddleback has been, um, I don't really know what the, disfellowshipped, maybe that's the right lingo. Um, They have, uh, they are no longer Southern Baptist. They have been ousted by the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, And you say, why? Well, it is um, because um, Andy Wood's wife, Stacy Wood, uh, is on the pastoral staff. They have other women at Saddleback 
in whose job title uh, the word pastor appears. So there's a lot of women in ministry leadership in a lot of Southern Baptist congregations um, and churches across the country and around the world, but the lingo of pastor is super sensitive. And so that's what's uh, going on there. Um, I listened yesterday to an interview that Russell Moore, who now works for Christianity Today, but did serve in the Southern Baptist Convention uh, as the head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty effort in that denomination. Russell Moore is also no longer no longer uh, Southern Baptist um, or no longer a part of a Southern Baptist congregation. Maybe that's a better way of saying that. Um, and so there's a lot of conversation going on among Southern Baptist, and then among other Christians, sort of about this development. And so I got to tell you, I learned some really extraordinary things in uh, in the conversation that Rick Warren had with Russell Moore. So if you're wondering, like, what's Carmen doing when she's walking around in the afternoon doing other things uh, at the grocery store or whatever? Well, I'm normally listening to other people <laughs> and their podcasts and what they're talking about. And so... Um, uh, I was really interested to learn that um, Rick Warren is engaged in an effort called Finish the Task, Finishing the Task. It is the mission of seeing every people group in the world engaged with um, an indigenously led church. It's the effort to see every person on earth have access to a Bible in their heart language, a church that they can access either physically or in some places it will of necessity be digitally. Um, They want to put the pedal to the metal, so to speak, and accelerate toward the goal of fulfilling the Great Commission like in the next 10 years. And you say to yourself, pretty sure other people have committed to doing that. Yeah, Well, they are committed to having a Bible translation for all languages, a strategy to share the good news with every person, person to person, um, and a church for every thousand people worldwide. Now, that would be a very, very aggressive church planting effort. But you know what? Aggressive church planting efforts is actually something that Saddleback is really good at. Um, Saddleback has churches related to them in 197 countries around the world. That That's just like extraordinary. Um, and so as a part of um, the conversation about, you know, God doing a new thing, I was led to finishing the task and finishing the task.com. And I just wanted to take a moment since we had a moment uh, to celebrate that. All right, we'll hit some other headlines when we come back. If you've got a uh, a concern out there, a headline that you're wondering why I haven't addressed or something you'd like to see me talk about, just text me, 877-933-2484. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge. This is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. Still all right with me.
All right, you guys, uh, you guys went for it on the text line. Totally appreciate that. Um, so um, I'm gonna I'm gonna take them in order, um, but I'm gonna just uh, quickly uh, quickly deal with a couple of them. Um, how many colleges and or seminaries has the revival at Asbury uh, spread? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that question, but I will do a little research on it. Um, an observation I made lately is boldness is contagious. Uh, it takes one to take a stand, and then others would have courage to join them. So be bold for Christ. Well, amen, amen, and amen, Lisa. Um, amen. Let's see. Um, all right. Others of you commenting on the Southern Baptists, which I'm not going to read those out loud. So there you go. But thank you for those contributions to the conversation. Uh Let's see. This is why I listen to Mornings with Carmen. No way much of this is going to make the network news um, or Facebook's stream. Yep. Mm-hmm. There you go. Um, okay. And then Kim asked this question. So, uh, Kim, you um, you win the question lottery because I'm actually just going to spend a minute answering your question. Kim says, well, since we've got time, I'd like to hear the story of how you and Jim met and um, your marriage, circumstances that brought you to be the mom of all these kids. Well, and, and a farm wife to boot. So there will be a Friday farm report tomorrow and it will be robust because it has been quite a week on the farm. Um, let's see. I uh, when I turned 40, um, I was engaged in a, in a national ministry. I had a really like, fairly high profile job. My sister's a couple of years older than me. Um, her kids are now uh a freshman and sophomore in college. So if I were to, you know, ratchet back 14 years, I think I'm 54. So 14 years, you know, her kids are little. Her kids were little. And my sister is, okay, let me just say it, a little bit bossy. She's my older sister. Um, I have spent my entire life waiting for her to tell me where to go and what to do and what to wear and how to behave myself. And so there you go. So when my sister said, I mean, uh, you know, it is, it's time. It, it's, she said, basically, look, uh, you're 40. Um, you know every Presbyterian in the country. But my job was among Presbyterians. Um, you know every Presbyterian in the country, and none of them want you, which is a very indelicate way of saying, like, you know, you're not going to find your person in this tribe. Uh, and so she suggested that she was going to make me an online dating profile, which I immediately resisted. I immediately resisted. And I said, if anybody's, you know, going to make me an online dating profile, it's going to have to be me. Um, and and so uh, I met Jim on eHarmony. That's sort of the short, abbreviated version. Um, and so... Yeah, and we are still discovering all these many years later uh, things that obviously that system of sifting and sorting and leading people at least to talk to each other across differences that you might in the culture think are too great. Um, Because at the time, uh, you know, I was a Presbyterian and uh, he was a free will Baptist and how those two people would meet is extraordinary. I had never been married. Um, he obviously had. Um, I had no kids. He had six. And um, yeah, so there you go. That is uh, the short version. Circumstances that brought us together. That is just purely the grace of God. 
Jim is my person. Like I, it would be impossible for me to celebrate to you all the ways in which God blesses me through this other individual by the gift of my husband. Um, He is wise and God honoring and deliberate in his study of the word, devoted to prayer. Um, He has this very high regard for God. Um, He loves people. People are precious. That is one of the things that if you spend any time with my husband, you will hear. People are precious. Um, And he doesn't just say that. He genuinely regards them as such. He, um, he's prone to spontaneous worship, particularly um, in response to the beauty of God's created order and what God does at sunrise and sunset and at the first little noise in the woods in the morning. Um, he's a beauty junkie, like color and beauty and just the the yeah those things that are awe inspiring those um i mean they lead my husband to weep um he cries easily i appreciate that about him um he yeah there you go mhm he's a lover of the word um i am second in his life and he is second in mine both of us um from the very beginning uh, deeply devoted to christ only interested in God bringing us together. If he could do more with us together than he was doing with us individually. Um, We are both um, fans of one another being used up by God and deployed in every way, space and time that God would want to use an individual. I feel totally celebrated and loved and safe. Um, There you go. I hope that satisfies uh, a little bit of your curiosity there. Uh, Mary wants to know my background story. Well, that's a little bit of it, Mary. No time probably to unpack the rest of it. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, Anne says, well, I didn't meet anybody on eHarmony, but I did meet Nate um, on Big Church. Well, there you go. Um, so, uh, yes, thank you for all of now these sweet, encouraging words that you're sending me. Um, let's see a little bit more of my backstory. I was born in Muncie, Indiana. My parents, um, Ruth Ann and Larry met at Purdue University. Um, my people are farm people from Indiana. Uh, and if you were to ask me, like, where does your heart go? Where does your heart go? When I say the word home, there's this, uh, old farmhouse in Muncie, Indiana, And that's where my heart goes when you say the word home. Uh, That was where, you know, Tony the Pony lived. And that's where um, I, you know, I got to raise dogs and horses and sheep and rabbits. I mean, I I was only six when we moved from there to Tampa, Florida. But if you ask me, where does your heart go when I say the word home? uh, Yeah, it still goes to Indiana. All right. Now, now, see, we um, we have had an enjoyable time together this morning, even without a third party to interrupt our conversation. Let's uh, take uh, time now to spend a little time with John Stone Street with today's Breakpoint. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. This is Faith Radio.
All right. Um, let me just tell you in advance, I, I'm really excited about the conversation we are about to have with Austin Freeman. Even though, even though the word dogmatics is in the title of the book. So immediately you're like, it's going to be a conversation about systematic theology. How could that be any fun at all? Well, because it's Tolkien dogmatics. Austin Freeman teaches um, classical, uh, he teaches at a classical school. He, um, he's a super bright guy. This is one of those times I wish we were on YouTube and there was a video component um, because I don't know if it's appropriate or not for me to say, but he might have the most fantastic hair of any guest we've ever had. Um, Tolkien Dogmatics is the book, Theology Through Mythology with the Maker of Middle Earth. For my um, fantasy junkies out there, yeah, this is just especially for you. But it's also for me as a mom um, of young adults and then now an emerging generation of grandbabies who love Tolkien and they love The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And I want to be a good mom and grandma to them in our conversations about it. So next up, Tolkien Dogmatics with Austin Freeman. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. Austin Freeman is here. Um, he he teaches at a classical Christian school. We want to know more about that. Um, he has a PhD from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He's a lecturer at HBU, Houston Baptist University. Um, and uh, I can already tell you that I regret we don't have more time to talk with him today because this is going to be really fun. Austin, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much, Carmen. I appreciate you guys having me and, and being hospitable. Okay, this is um, this is a fantastic, um, fantastic book, uh, Tolkien Dogmatics, Theology Through Mythology with the Maker of Middle-Earth. I'll drop the links in um, the show notes today. Um, all right, you're using Tolkien's entire corpus, um, but I think that there are a lot of folks who only know, like, The Hobbit. They only know Lord of the Rings. So yeah. um, maybe broaden the scope of of what you take into account when you are knitting together, um, not just, you know, sort of like the gospel and the Lord of the Rings, but Tolkien's systematic theology as expressed in all of his writings. Sure. So what many people that are only familiar maybe with the Peter Jackson movies don't know is is Tolkien was a chaired professor at Oxford for almost his entire career. He was a first-rate thinker on a world stage. Uh, his lectures on Beowulf and Old English changed the face of that whole discipline. Uh, it, it is one of the few academic essays that's still read, you know, almost 50 years after it, it, it comes out. So Tolkien is a, a, a giant of an intellectual, uh, and he also is a synthetic thinker. He's a Renaissance man. And so everything that he thinks is connected to everything else, as it should be. And in order to really understand what he's doing with his fiction, we also really need to take into account what he's doing with his study of language, um, with his family life, uh, with his personal faith. I love that. I love the um, the integration that really comes forth when you talk about this. I think that sometimes when people think about dogmatics or they think about systematic theology, 
Um, they're not thinking about integration. They're actually thinking about breaking something down into its parts and pieces and sticking it in a box. Um, talk with us a little bit about um, the process of reading, because I think one of, that's one of the things that we learn from you. Um, there is an art and a theology to reading that leads you to actually hear what the author is saying and not just garner from it whatever you know fits my uh, particular way of looking at things. The, the reader response method is is rampant in culture right now. Um, and there's not to say there's not a place for that, but I think Tolkien himself would distinguish between uh, intention and applicability, or in his conversation, allegory and applicability. Uh, so Tolkien, even within his lifetime, people would approach him and say, oh, well, the One Ring represents nuclear power or the orcs or the Germans or any, any of these sort of things. This is what your story is about. And Tolkien felt very free to tell them, no, that's not what I meant. But I'm glad that you can see how that applies and how you can use that as an example for your own thinking. And so that's what I tried to do in the book. Uh, I, I separate the sections out. Uh, it's organized based on doctrines. So there's one chapter on the doctrine of God, and then on creation and revelation and humanity and Christ and and on down the line. Um, and I start off with Tolkien's non-fictional thoughts on each of these subjects, uh, things that we call from his letters to his family or from his Oxford lectures or from his other published works on medieval theological texts. Uh, and then I move into the way that Tolkien shows uh, his beliefs in his fiction uh, and in Middle Earth and, and the literature that most people are familiar with. Now, what we also have to do is be careful that we're not oversimplifying what Tolkien is doing, because he's not writing uh, an apologetic work. He's not writing mm -hmm. Christian literature. He's first and foremost writing a good story. So the the segment that John just talked about is, is perfect for moving into discussing this book, because that's exactly what Tolkien was doing. Tolkien was trying to write a good story that he enjoyed. And what happened is because his mind was so saturated with Christian themes, uh, it came out naturally and organically. Uh, and then he said that in the revision, he consciously attempted to shape it to be to to be consonant with his uh, faith and belief and with his metaphysics. Yeah. So let me plumb the depths of that a little bit further with you, Austin. Um, Tolkien is first writing a good story, not writing a book of Christian devotion. Um, he he actually, I think, said like. The book, the work is explicitly Christian, but or not explicitly Christian, but it is Christian. And I think that that helps us um, move around in the fantasy and theology space, which is obviously the space that you you like to roam around in yourself. So um, talk, maybe talk with us about fairy tale worlds um, and things that are true there, no matter the story. Mm. Yeah, so Tolkien is influenced by a long stream of other British Christians uh, and British Christian writers. Um, the the one I'll talk about here is one that me, people may have heard of. Uh, there's a, another wonderful fairy tale by a guy named George MacDonald uh, who wrote The Princess and the Goblin. Uh, those of you guys who have never read that one, it's, it's well worth picking up. But uh, in one of his other non-Middle-Earth stories, Smith of Wooten Major, uh, which is sort of a model fairy tale, starts off that way. Uh, Tolkien references George MacDonald and how he was influential to him er earlier in his career. And George MacDonald, um, among these other people, says that uh, in fairy tales, what we're doing is sub-creating. So God is obviously the primary creator, 
but human beings made in the image of God are therefore made in the image of a maker. And so when we make things, when we make fantasy, we're actually making little worlds in, in the imitation of God. Mm. What we have to understand, however, is that there are certain things that have to be true in every possible world. So we can change the color of the sun. We can imagine that uh, hobbits are roaming around, but something like the moral law, which is rooted in God's nature and is therefore infinite and eternal, uh, has to be the same in every world that we imagine. Otherwise, we're going to to run into problems. And so Tolkien, yes, he might have elves and dragons, but he does have the same moral law that we operate with. Uh, here in the primary world, and he does that deliberately. And I think that's one of the reasons why the story feels so real, because the consequences uh, and the complexities are the same as we experience in our daily life. And I, that, that's one of the things that fairy tales uh, help us to see. Fairy tales are sort of magnifying glass to particular uh, aspects of reality. They help us to explore the the what-ifs uh, behind what we see. And they give us the the scope to sort of make visible and dramatic certain things, which might also be much more subtle, like uh, spiritual warfare or the process of temptation, for instance. That's so good. Um, we're talking with Austin Freeman. He is the author of Tolkien Dogmatics, among other things. He's also a classical school teacher, which we'll get to in just a moment because I'm particularly interested in that. Um, let's uh, let's let's answer this question. Because a a person's systematic theology or their dogma could end up being faithful or unfaithful. When you mm. think about Tolkien's dogmatics, are we talking about a presentation not just of some sort of organized faith, but one that is orthodox and organized and Christian? Yes. So first off, we need to understand Tolkien is very explicitly a, a traditional Roman Catholic. Uh, so... He has things that I personally disagree with. I, I, I tried to be faithful in the book to what Tolkien thought and not let my voice sort of intrude over his and criticize his. So the, the work is a descriptive work, uh, and it's very well-sided for people to go in and see exactly where Tolkien is drawing these conclusions. But yes, he is very consciously attempting to um, guard the deposit of faith that is entrusted to him. I mean, there are people that came to him with letters saying, you know, the elves reincarnate. Are you sure that that's not bad theology? And he said, well, you'd have to do the, the work to convince me of that because I, I don't see that there's anything wrong in an imagined world with talking about another avenue that God could have used. Um, it's certainly not true in the primary world. And that goes back to the question that you just spoke of previously is we've got to be careful when we're doing the work of interpretation and reading to not over-assume uh, where Tolkien's fiction is going to align one-to-one -one with his primary beliefs. Uh, but overall, as a man, as a thinker, which is what the book is focused on, is Tolkien as a man and Middle-earth only secondarily. Yes, he he is very faithful. He's a, a, a almost daily church attender, uh, and he's exposed to the creeds and the councils and to historic Christianity, to, to people like Augustine and Thomas Aquinas. Um, and if if there is a time in which Tolkien uh, steps out of the the line of the great tradition, then he he wants to be brought in. Tolkien is is seeking to be faithful in what he does, and I think that's the the first step in any good theology is seeking to be obedient. Folks on our text line, Austin, um, you know, being sure that folks who are listening and don't know it, Tolkien was um, absolutely essential 
in um, in the coming to faith of a guy named Jack, who we all know as C.S. Lewis. Um, so yes, thank you to those of you pointing that out online as well. Um, when we come back, I'm going to ask Austin, yes, about classical education and why it uh, why he's interested in it and engaged in it. But I'm also going to ask him about eucatastrophe. It's a word we talked about a long time ago. Um, in another conversation with another friend, but it has particular relevance to the conversation that we're having today about Tolkien and um, and his approach and the way that he presents storylines um, and the big story that's, you know, sort of behind them all. So more with Austin Freeman here on Mornings with Carmen. The book is Tolkien Dogmatics. We'll be right back. Listen to Faith Radio live or on demand no matter where you go. Download the free Faith Radio app at your app store today. All right, if you've been listening to Mornings with Carmen for any length of time, you know I like to hold the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in another. Well, let me tell you, if you're going to read Lord of the Rings or anything else by Tolkien, you're going to want to hold Tolkien dogmatics in the other hand because it's going to help you understand um, the characters and the worlds that Tolkien um, created uh, as a as a version of, of a reflection of reality, but clear departure from it. So we're talking with Austin Freeman. He is the author of Tolkien Dogmatics. Um, talk with us, um, Austin, about eucatastrophe, because I think that it, to to understand this as a tool that Tolkien uses is um, is important. Yes. So eucatastrophe, if we break it down, there's the word catastrophe, which I think everybody's familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, and But the, the prefix eu is Greek for good. So Tolkien invents this word uh, good catastrophe, uh, which is a sort of a good overthrowing uh, or a good uh, great change that happens. Uh, and he says that eucatastrophe is the essence of all fairy tales. There comes a point in the story when things are as dark as they can possibly be and we can't see any way that the heroes are going to triumph. And then something completely unexpected and unrepeatable happens. Uh, and there's this intervention which completely changes the the face of the story and turns the tide. And you have this feeling inside of you of exaltation. Uh, and Tolkien said that feeling of exaltation should not be ignored. That is pointing towards an element of our human nature that we need to pay attention to, that God has designed, because that's the way that God has scripted the story of the universe. There is a great disaster, and then there is a great reversal of that disaster on Calvary. And so Tolkien says, if the universe is a fairy tale, then Jesus Christ is the eucatastrophe. He is the good overthrow of all that is dark and evil and the great reversal that brings light out of darkness. Austin, um, when when you think about Tolkien's version of creation. Let's do, let's do this. Let's just bring one thing into focus here. Um, The world has already fallen. So that, that is something that is like not reflective of reality, but sometimes the truth is drawn out when, when there is a departure from reality. So can you talk a little bit about that? Talk a little bit about the power of characters and worlds and storylines that depart from reality as a way of teaching what is really real? Sure. So I think that a a good example of that might be 
uh, Gandalf and the Balrog on the Bridge of Moria. Mm. It's a classic scene mm. that I think a lot of people are going to be familiar with. Mm. Um, so according to Tolkien, Gandalf is, is an that. Angel. Now, wait a second. Is that thou shalt not pass? Yeah, is that that one? Not pass. That's the scene. You will That's not pass. Okay. About. There you go. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, so we've got the Fellowship. And they are just trying their best. They're they're trying to get the ring to Mordor, and they've got their uh, wise guide Gandalf, uh, who uh, Tolkien tells us is an angel who has taken on a body and who has lived among human beings and elves and dwarves for many centuries. Uh, and Gandalf has been uh, guiding them like a good guardian angel. And then there is the Balrog, who has been awoken from the depths of Moria, and uh, the Balrog like Gandalf, is an angel, but a fallen one. And so here on the bridge of Moria, we have a spiritual warfare between an angel and a demon for the safety of these particular individuals and for the fate of the world. Now, that happens every day, right? That's happening all around Mm -hmm. us right now. Um, Much like in Lord of the Rings, there is a god, Eru, who is is providentially overseeing these things. And so um, he, in a sense, the fate has already been decided, but but we're working that out in our lives. And so uh, what Tolkien does is he just makes it very dramatic and very epic to to show us something that really is happening, um, which we wouldn't be able to talk about as cogently without using these, these metaphors, these symbols. I mean, human beings are built to work on symbol and and myth that for Tolkien, that's part of our human nature that God has designed us with. And so he wants to use the tools that God has given us to focus in on some things that uh, that are real. So yeah, there there isn't a giant flaming demon, but there are uh, real spirits of evil. Um, there is not a, a wizard with a hat and a staff, but there are angels who help us and guide us. Um, so in Tolkien's departures from reality, the, the way you mentioned it, he's still focusing in on things which uh, have real bearing on human lives. Okay, if we had another 20 minutes, I would ask you, why are Christians seemingly so good at um, writing good redemptive fantasy? Um, and I would ask you what you think about the mo- movie adaptations. Um, but I want to ask this before we run out of time. I know you're going to have to come back. I want to also, I totally wanted to have a conversation about the uttermost farthing, but I don't have time for that either. So I'm just going to put it in the show notes today. Okay. Does that sound okay. like a good deal? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, um, why does everybody want the ring? Mm-hmm. Um, everybody wants the ring because the ring is sort of the, the embodiment of evil. Uh, the ring is not just a ring. Um, the the way that Tolkien writes it, and I think it's a, a good strategy on his part, he sort of blurs the line between the ring being conscious and an object. And so the ring is itself a sort of demon, uh, and it it tempts you. It's not just a passive object. Sauron has put a bit of himself in there. So mm-hmm. the, the ring is a spiritual power which is too great for us to um, to handle on our own, as any spiritual power is, right? The authority that we have does not come from us. Uh, it, it comes from elsewhere. And so everybody wants the ring because the ring is making them want it. Uh, and it's, it's working on, as you said, they're already fallen nature. Uh, and it is exposing and accentuating and magnifying the desires that they already have. But importantly, and this is where Tolkien really uh, can be very useful to us, it, it is in analyzing the, the nature of evil. Nobody wants the ring because they want to be evil. 
everybody wants the ring because they want to do something good with it, but they want to do something good in a bad way. So Frodo is tempted by the ring all the time to, to overthrow Sauron and free everybody and save the Shire. But we know that ultimately he'll just turn into another tyrant. So that, that, that's an important point about evil that Tolkien talks to us about through through the use of the ring is the way that it tempts people towards seeming good, but uh, but which will quickly be distorted. All right. Um, you have a minute to make the case for classical education. Uh, OK, uh, well, I am about to go into work and read Dante and Beowulf and Paradise Lost and Jane Austen and. The Iliad and all of these other books with high school students, and uh, do they know the- how blessed they are? Like, do they know that they're in the presence of a beautiful mind? <laughs> well, I'm in the presence of some of their beautiful minds too. But the, That's the, good. it really is. It really is an opportunity um, because at, at this day and age, because of cell phones and because of media, so many kids' worldviews are already formed by the time they go out to college. Right? College used mm. to be the time. Where need to prep them to sort of take on the world and and make sure that they've got a solid worldview but that's already happening folks like they they are already developing their views of what they think and of what their values are before they leave your house and so we, we need to make sure that uh, education is situating them in a tradition of of ethics and of philosophy that is consonant with the biblical worldview otherwise uh it, by the time they become teenagers by the time they become 18 and and go off somewhere it's too late okay please put me on whatever list that you're keeping um every time that you want to talk about something because um (laughs) we we love you already and we would love to have you back like you're just a delight let me just compliment you not everybody um actually knows the books they've written and you don't just know the book you've written you you can talk across the subject matter area um, really freely and with a breadth and depth that is so refreshing. So I, I just That's I delight in you. Of classical education as well. There I'll you go. I'm just deli- I'm just delighting in you. So thank you. I'm um, so much for being with us, Austin Freeman. You guys need to check him out. Um, the book is Tolkien Dogmatics. I do not have copies to give away today. I am so sorry, but you can find them um, easily. It's a theology through mythology with the maker of Middle Earth, and you can find. Austin Freeman on Facebook as well. I'll drop all the links in the show notes today. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge. This is Faith Radio. Your theology is always showing. I, you're, it doesn't... It, it, your theology is always showing. That is sort of Austin's point. I mean, he doesn't say it that way, but I can, I can tell um, what you believe about God by the things that you say, the way that you, the ways in which you say them, um, the way in which you live. Uh, I mean, on and on and on. And so you can tell what Tolkien's theology is, um, right, by reading his stories. What is your life going to tell people today about God? Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.